Okay. Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us on the Peace Building Podcast. I am so stoked to have a co-host here whose name is Stephen Gray. I want to tell you a little bit about him and why I'm so excited to have him join me. Stephen is uh, hails from New Zealand. Um, he is bright, fun, super smart, entrepreneurial, and uh, very grounded really in the more, I guess I'll call the actual field of peace building in contrast to me, who's really an organization development consultant, mediator, and facilitator. So he's gonna bring to this podcast, I think some really practical examples of what's happening in the peace building field and talk to you know, the more formal peace building practitioners. He's a super agile thinker, you know, he's not American, which I think is uh, important. And I, I think maybe because my focus recently has been so much on the critical aspect of gender in terms of getting gender right, being the most important peace building initiative I think we could undertake on the planet. One thing about Stephen that's really stood out to me is that he models, embodies a new form of masculinity to me. You know, he's what Terry Real in my the latest interview I've done talks of as a more ecological model of masculinity. And I think Stephen embodies that completely. So he, he has a company called Adapt Peace Building um, that I'm sure you can learn more about. But I'm going to say hello, Stephen. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad we're doing this experiment together and having a really fun time together. So hello, hello. And if you want to say a few words about yourself and then also introduce our next host. Only that I, I've never been described as having an ecological model of masculinity. <laughs> so I will count that as a first and I may put a placard on my wall. Thank you for having me, Susan. I'm really excited to introduce a guy called Graham Simpson that I spoke with recently. Graham Simpson is the U.S. Director of a nonprofit peacebuilding organization called Interpeace. Graham Simpson has a fantastic history coming out of the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa, and he then ran an organization called the Center for the Study of Violence and Reconciliation for about 20 years, which focused on what he describes as, very interestingly, the integrated lived experience of people experiencing conflict and I found that aspect of our conversation so fascinating because he talks about how in our world of peace building we talk about gender issues we talk about rule of law issues we talk about reconciliation post-conflict conflict prevention and he said look you know in the lives of people that are affected by conflict all of that stuff is woven together and we need to stop thinking and acting in such siloed ways now, it's a pretty timely moment to be discussing with Graham because he's just finished as a lead author of the United Nations Youth Peace and Security Report, which I think is being released during the General Assembly period at the moment. Now, a couple of things that were so fascinating about his work on this report is that he'd said to the UN, look, we can't write a report about youth just by consulting experts. We need to actually work with and through the voices of youth. So they interviewed hundreds of Thank God. <laughs> young people. Yes, right? Thank God. Yeah. Actually, actually or the goddess, whatever. Yeah. And they had people from all across the world. So this report 
they really wanted to see it as walking the talk in terms of including youth in its production. And then another thing that I, I felt was really interesting that came out of this, and I don't think we're grappling with this, Susan, how disillusioned young people are with our democratic systems, with our multilateral systems, and we're talking about how we can make space for them to participate. If I can say, one of the things that I think may be the problem is they don't necessarily see them as democratic. Millennials, in a way, have reached a kind of collaboration that I, I witness watching them that I think is transcending quickly a lot of the, the democratic, quote unquote, and multilateral systems that we've had so far. That's absolutely right. So Graham talks about these new forms of organizing, these new forms of peace building, the creativity and passion of young people, and how that can be employed as a new generational wave of peace building, which I think is something we should all take on board. So please enjoy. Yeah, thanks for bringing him on. I'm really looking forward to this episode. It's fantastic to speak with you today, Graham. I was recommended to reach out to you by Elise Ford, who is a colleague at Humanity United. She had met you possibly for the first time, I'm not sure, but she'd been working with you at the Quakers meeting at the United Nations in New York. And she was very inspired by some of the thoughts that you'd had about how our world is changing particularly as concerns the views of youth and how peace building must contend with some of those changes. Then I spoke with you and I felt similarly inspired by your background in hearing about how you had come up through your work in South Africa, working directly with people affected by conflict and seeing the integrated nature of their challenges. And I got a real sense from you that you have bring a very grounded view to your work, which is sometimes absent in the type of policy and conversations that we have in places like New York and other capitals that are thousands of miles away from where violence is happening. So I'm really excited to have this conversation with you and hear about your journey as well as your more recent work on writing the Youth Peace and Security Report for the United Nations, which I believe is just published or soon to be published. So without further ado, I'd love to just hear a little bit about your background and what brought you into peace building and, and how you found yourself in your current position and what you're doing now. It's really nice to be talking to you as well. And I'm very grateful to Elise for having referred me to you. I actually had um, met Elise a few times and sort of worked with her and spoken to her um, doing some of the convenings that Humanity United was doing and thinking about their work on prevention and atrocity prevention and building in the relationship between the two. So um, we've had some of these deep conversations. I think she shouldn't hear me saying anything striking or new that I hadn't said before at the recent CUNA meeting. By way of background, I'm South African. I finished high school in 1976, which was as a white South African a very significant moment. It was the year of fire and ash. It was the year in which my compatriot black South Africans were on the streets fighting stones with guns at a critical moment in the sort of rebirth and reignition of a liberation movement in anti-apartheid work. And it was really at university having 
dodged the draft, which uh, white South Africans all faced compulsory military conscription. I came from a fairly atypical background. I dodged that. And it was really through the student movement as a student leader in the National Union of South African Students that I really cut my teeth in this work. I studied a master's degree in history. I subsequently went on to do a law degree. And I have to say my training was in the, was in the practice of anti-apartheid work. I think that's really where I cut my professional teeth. At the end of that period, at the end of the 1980s, and just before the dramatic transition to democracy in South Africa, which was um, as much of a surprise to many of us inside the country and the rapidity with which it happened as those looking at it from afar, I co-founded an organization which became known as the Center for the Study of Violence and Reconciliation. And it was really there that I think I wrestled with all of the challenges of the ways in which patterns of violence and conflict were transmuting and changing and uh, the challenges of a society that was going through formal processes of constitutional change, a remarkable negotiated transition, um, in some ways viewed from afar as this sort of a model of a peace-building process, a formal peace negotiation that worked in South Africa. And, and wrestling with all the messiness, uncomfortableness of it, incompleteness of it, and surviving patterns of violence and conflict that was involved there. And it was really in that work, in the 15, in the, the luxury of uh, an organization born in the death throes of apartheid that lived through the, the negotiated transition, a four-year period of, of negotiations, and then 10 years of crafting and cultivating an embryonic democracy with all its warts and problems and dysfunction that I think I really learned what I did. And it was in that space that I think we developed an organization that was unselfconsciously interdisciplinary. We had psychologists, sociologists, historians, lawyers, all under one roof. We ran a trauma center for victims of violence alongside a transitional justice unit and a criminal justice reform program and a youth program and a gender program. And so in many ways, it was a place in which I think we just lived in our work, the extraordinary experience of ordinary people whose lived experience of both conflict and peace processes was indivisible in their own language, uh, you know, inseparable. Their experiences victims of torture or their experiences of being oppressed black people or their marginalization from the economy, their exclusion from education. These were inseparable experiences. And so very quickly we developed an approach which was recognizing that what is often bifurcated approaches in a donor world or in a policy world, which sees human rights as one track and governance as another track and psychological recovery and trauma healing as another track and economic empowerment is another, we recognize that ordinary people, the lived experience of conflict and peace, these things are completely enmeshed and intertwined. And I think our work at the Center for the Study of Violence and Reconciliation, my my formative years as a as an activist and as a policymaker and as a, a scholar doing research on these things, always trying to work in that triangle of policy, practice and scholarship, was uh, you know, this wasn't constructed. This was just a sort of natural, integrated approach, which we're wrestling with these things as problems that ordinary people experienced alongside each other in an integrated way. That's fantastic. And for the benefit of our listeners, can you state who you're working for now and how you got pulled into and ended up 
lead authoring the Youth Peace and Security Report for the United Nations. Yeah, I mean, it's a, a long trajectory and I'll summarise to spare you and your listeners. Um, so having worked at the sort of national level, having recognised that our ability to speak up was always contingent on our ability to listen down, <laughs> that our testing at the community level in practice, our thinking that we were trying to translate into policy, that really, I suppose, in some ways reached a peak with our work in South Africa on the establishment of the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, all the processes associated with transitional justice in South Africa, again, with all their limits and failures and warts and problems. And it was really based on that that I was then, uh, kind of after 15 years of doing that, very mindful of, of founder syndrome and the danger that I could stay too long in an organization that I'd forged. I was a white South African man leading an organization that needed to be led by black South Africans. It was time for me to move on, and I was very eager to move into an international space. And so it was in 2005 I left South Africa. I joined an organization called the International Center for Transitional Justice, and became involved in, uh, headed up their program work and then their thematic work over the next four or five years. Whilst working there, I think I wrestled with being in an organization which had a very strong human rights orientation, but in some ways I felt had lost, for me, some of the engagements with the messiness of transitions and reconciliation and relationship-based peace building. And so in 2009, I moved from the International Center of Transitional Justice to Interpeace, where I'm still currently working as the director of the New York office. Um, and Interpeace was a peace-building organization. I have to say I sometimes wrestle in the peace-building field with exactly the reciprocal frustration, which is that we see human rights and normative standards and obligations under law and uh, rule of law approaches sometimes as a hurdle uh, to be overcome in peace processes instead of a critical part of a prevention approach, justice as prevention as a group. So I'm I've always occupied a space at this interface between peace building and human rights, between politics and law, justice and conflict. And it was really in that work that I kind of came back to thinking a lot about young people, because in many respects, all of my work with youth had seen, as I said, this has been the perfect environment in which these things were seen as integrated parts of a whole lived experience of a world in which young people live their lives, that human rights and politics and justice and law and conflict were inseparable in their minds. And a lot of their conversations, when I did undertake the youth peace and security study, was very much about how young people described their experience of conflict and violation as injustice. This was just inseparable. So it was in that work that I'd started to, um, in Interpeace, I'd, I'd helped develop a strategy around youth-based peace building and peace building in the youth field. And based on that, was asked to throw my hat into the ring uh, when this uh, Youth Peace and Security Progress Study was initiated. It came out of a Security Council Resolution 2250 passed in December 2015, which mandated a study to be undertaken to look at the positive contributions of young people to building peace and to preventing violent conflict. And that really appealed to me because of the positive orientation. I threw my hat into the ring. I didn't think for a minute I would get this job and was really quite surprised, a little intimidated, and frankly thrilled when when I did. That's wonderful. I understand that the report has been released or is soon to be released. So we've undertaken multiple versions of it. So the first version that was presented was presented to the Security Council as a report to the Council. We briefed the Council in April of this year, 2018. 
that was constrained by word count, by the protocols of the council, by the politics of that process. And I was very concerned because we'd gone to great lengths to make it a participatory process in which young people's voices were at the front and centre of the exercise, which I think was unusual and challenging for the UN. And so we were very keen to make sure that the constraints of a short, managed, politically targeted report uh, didn't constrain our ability to represent the stories, the voice, the articulation of young people themselves. And so there's a longer version of the study which will be out at the end of this month in September 2018 and presented to the General Assembly through a side panel at the UNGA in, in September this year. Our mandate was to present both to the Security Council and Member States. So this dovetailing of the focus on the Council and then a focus on the General Assembly is is tactically also very important and fulfills the mandate that we, we had under the resolution. Fantastic. I was really thrilled to hear when we spoke last time of the participatory nature of the research. I can't remember how many interviews you conducted, but I remember that it was a, a very high number. And I'm a big believer, as many others are, that our research processes or evaluations or, or whatever it is in, in the field of peace building shouldn't be purely extractive. They should, through their process and functions, actually serve to organize empower, I don't like the term build capacity, but support the communities that ultimately will be responsible for building peace because it's often not us, as you know, to the extent that we're outsiders in these processes. Now, here's a an opportunity for you because writing these reports, I can imagine that you were faced with multiple conflicting perspectives that you may have challenged some of the findings and politicized some of the findings and led you to have to fight for certain perspectives in the report. But here's a space open for you to be as frank as you are able to or, or would like to be about what you see as the most important findings from that report. It's quite substantial. I think it will come in at 80 plus pages, I'm not sure. But if you were to give the short form version of what you think are the critical learnings of what youth are saying about their role in peace and other aspects from the report, what would you say? So I'll begin with two things, and they both relate to the sort of introductory comments and context. The first is that I think that the genesis of the study coming out of the Security Council as it did was defined by very, diff you know, different players had very different objectives. I think there were some uh, member states who supported this because they saw it as an important part of a, of filling a, a massive gap, the voicelessness of 1.8 billion young people around the world who just did not have political voice, who had never been an object of the exercise for the United Nations. The international community, the multilateral system had really failed this sector. And so for some, it was about how to resolve that and how to build participation, inclusion, recognition of young people and create that space. For others, it was frankly about the specter and threat of, of extremism and terrorism. And the youth peace and security strategy was about an alternative vehicle for counter-terrorism and counter-violent extremism. And I think that the one of the most important dimensions of this was our attempt to engage those competing sometimes political perspectives and find a way of 
integrating them intelligently, making this politically palatable. And so at the end, I think the key message of the study was very simply, until we address the violence of exclusion experienced by young people, we will never prevent the violence of extremism. And so we're trying to find a way of integrating those two approaches and thinking about them intelligently, not alienating any player, but very definitely placing the emphasis on participation, on inclusion, on young people's, not just voice, on young people's agency and leadership. And I think this is the core message. My starting point in the study and in undertaking it was, therefore, if we are talking about solving the problem of exclusion, we can't reproduce that in the method of the study. To be honest, one of the messages in this, and one of the most important ones, is that how we did this is almost as important as what we're doing and what we're saying. That the demonstration effect of saying this has to be about young people directly participating and not just the usual suspects. This is not the normal way the UN does these sorts of things. So it was really about pushing very hard to say this can't just be about a narrow set of consultations in which the usual suspects, young, a youth elite who are familiar with English, who are articulate, who understand the policy environment and who comfortably fit within it are the only people we listen to. We have to speak to young people who we called erroneously hard to reach. Young people are very quick to say to us, we're not hard to reach, actually. You just aren't listening. And you're not trying hard enough. And you're not looking, you know, we're out there. So I made a perhaps rash promise to all of the young people we spoke to, which when I present this to the Security Council, if you can't see yourselves and hear your voices, we've failed. And I think that that was a real commitment. And it was a battle that had to be won within the UN. I think we had great support from people inside the UN who were embracing gladly the opportunity to try and do this differently, to do it in a more participatory way. It meant we had to raise the money. It meant we had to do a whole lot of things. But we ended up with you know, 281 focus groups in 44 countries and 27 country case studies and uh, thousands of young people who participate in processes. So I think that was just absolutely fundamental to this process. And I think it changes the messaging, it changes the content, not just because of what we're saying, but because of how and on what basis we're able to say it. And I really think that that's um, essential. So if the, if the first key message of the study was we need to address the violence of exclusion and to understand exclusion as structural violence, as experienced as, as a violation by young people, described as an injustice by them, if we were going to do that, you know, that was the only way we could prevent the violence of extremism on all fronts. And I have to say, one of the key messages that came out of this was young people very often said they are more frightened of their own governments than they are sometimes of so-called terrorists and extremist groups, that they feel that sometimes their governments are more concerned to shut them down. So this was a very powerful message in the study. And so what we discovered was a series of policy myths that are shaping the way in which governments and the multilateral system are treating young people, regarding them as a problem, a problem to be solved rather than an asset and an attribute for peace. And so a core message of the study was that young people are doing extraordinary things to build peace and we're not seeing it, that instead we're treating them as a problem, and that based on either the assumption that growing youth populations produce increased levels of violence, no evidence to sustain this, that the majority of young people are at risk of joining extremist groups, frankly, you know, the vast majority of young people are not involved. It's a tiny sliver 
of young people that we're treating as a threat. We're allocating all our resources to security-based measures to dealing with this tiny sliver instead of the vast majority who are not involved in conflict. And you can see this in you know the third area where we were seeing this powerful representation that youth-based migration produces a risk of infiltration, increased terrorism, increased violence. Quite the opposite is true. Young migrants are job creators, they are innovators, they are creative, and they're very often critical to peace and highly resilient. So this was the second, I think, key message that came out of this, was to scrutinize all of these policy myths and to say there is an alternative path that young people are demonstrating extraordinary, innovative and creative ways of building peace and contributing to preventing violence. That was the luxury of my mandate. That was the, the piece of this that was so ready to embrace. But that it's in fact about there are alternative paths to invest in, which are about young people's innovation, creativity, endogenous, resilient actions for peace, that are about investing in resilience rather than just treating youth as a source of risk. And I think these are the core messages that came out of this. I'll go on to say this. I think that young people, in the way in which they describe their peace building, their youth-led and youth-based peace building activities, challenged a lot of the assumptions that I think many people have about this. And one of them was very clearly uh, this integrated approach that what young people were saying to us was that you need to embed this in a development approach that issues of peace and conflict are inseparable from the SDGs. And in fact, they said to me, every sustainable goal is a youth sustainable goal. Every SDG is a youth SDG. We aren't going to be ghettoized in one area. You can't talk about youth as a sector separate from all of these other things. So I think one of the most important messages that young people articulated was this idea that the issues of youth violence and the enhancing of young people's contribution to peace and the prevention of violence conflict, violent conflict cannot be achieved through monocausal solutions. That if we look for sort of simplistic problems, monocausal solutions, we're going to fail. And a perfect illustration of this was the whole arena of youth employment, which is so often treated as the panacea to the issues of youth conflict. And in fact, all of the evidence uh, suggests that actually on its own, employment is simply not going to address the problem of youth violence and of conflict. And in fact, quite the contrary, there's uh, very strong evidence that sometimes it's the most well-educated and affluent and employed young people who join political movements and who become participants in violence. So I think we learned an enormous amount from young people about our assumptions and the need to scrutinize some of our assumptions about this. That's very useful. I do some work with the Amityar group and it relates to systems thinking and complexity aware approaches to peace building. And one of the mindsets that they point to is the need to see patterns rather than problems and to not just try and address what you described as a, a monocausal problem, but see the need for parallel interventions that unlock the potential for a different type of lived experience by youth. And I, I think that really nicely relates to what you opened with about the integrated nature of people's problems. You can't just address a lack of employment and expect it to be a, a panacea. You mentioned during the talk just now about some of the alternative methods that youth are, are using 
to promote peace building. And I think that we should spend some time there a little bit later. But first, I just wanted to quiz you on something that came out of our previous conversation and my reading of the report, which is the sense of disillusionment that youth have with their own governments and the multilateral system. There seems to me to be this gaping disconnect between what the multilateral system and governments are saying, which is, well, we need to find ways to include youth to allow participation. And what youth are saying, which is that we don't find your forms of governance or what the multilateral system is offering as legitimate forms of participation or actually representing our needs. And that seems to me to be a big problem uh, because we're talking about a, a future generation that is disillusioned with the fundamental building blocks of the international peace building architecture. So what do you feel are the implications of that disconnect? And do you think these institutions, multilateral institutions, are really grappling with what that means in terms of their relevance for the next generation? Um, I think that governments in the multilateral system are grappling with this in a very clumsy way. And I think the magnitude of the problem that uh, you've articulated and that I think we're trying to describe in the study is not fully appreciated. But I'm not sure that that just represents a problem. Because I think one of the things that the study tried to do is it represented the extraordinary potential of the space young people are occupying and the way in which the alternatives that they're forging and the creative innovative activities that they're engaging with. And really, they're forging alternatives that we need to embrace, harness, enrich, and give space to or recognize in, uh, you know, adequately. So this is not just the description of a dysfunction and a problem. I think it's the description of a creative set of alternatives that are being driven from below, that young people are shaping and defining. Um, and in many respects, you know, they, this was framed very simply. Um, we talked very readily about inclusion until young people started saying, you know, we don't love that word because it suggests that we are being included by someone else. We're being invited to sit at your table and we have set our own table and maybe it's time for you to come and sit at ours. The language of no youth left behind or no one left behind, young people were sometimes saying, careful, maybe it's us who are leaving you behind rather than the other way around. I think these are powerful. If we aren't, don't see these as threatening and we see them as creative attributes. I think this is a very powerful space and opportunity. But you're right, it is It is resident in a, and that this is at the heart of the study, and in some senses, the thankfully, the recognition of this in some quarters in the multilateral system um, and in governments was that at the heart of this is a growing trust deficit between young people and their governments, between young people in the multilateral system, and frankly, even young people in international civil society organizations. And I think the point is we need to embrace this rather than treat it as a threat. We need to recognize that trust deficit as, as being at the heart of it. But in their alternative praxis, in the innovation and creativity in which young people are saying, well, if these spaces are not adequate for us or if these are not really open spaces for us, we will forge our own and drive our own approaches to peace building. I think in that we can find the resourceful, resilient, innovative, and creative space that young people offer that has the potential to transform the way we think about cultivating peace in the world. 
So I'd like to unpack that a little bit more. What are these alternative forms of organizing, alternative forms of promoting peace? What can we learn from what young people are doing, which is different and innovative and creative and can take us forward as a collective community of peace builders? So what the study does in in one of its chapters is it describes what we call a youth-based or a youth-led peace-building typology. I think that's a slightly wishful phrase. I think it's not as comprehensive as that, but there's a within the study there is an attempt to do this. And, and what it really looks at, and this is very true to what young people themselves have described, we are in the policy world when we think about what does sustaining peace mean. There's a new language to sustaining peace and making peace sustainable, that I think young people have invented as practice rather than as um, abstract policy. So young people are working across all phases of conflict. This was a study that recognized the universality of the youth experience lived in by African-Americans in Chicago and New York, or second-generation migrant youth in the suburbs of Sweden, in Stockholm in Sweden, as much as they are the experiences of young people who are marginalized and excluded in South Sudan or in the Balkans or anywhere in the world. And so there is something in the universality of that experience that was very powerful and that enabled young people to say, in some areas we are working in early intervention models, we're working in relatively peaceful societies to think about how to preserve and sustain peace in the long term. In others, we're working in situations to prevent the outbreak of conflict. In others, the continuation or escalation of conflict. Sometimes we're working in humanitarian ways. And sometimes we're demanding participation in post-conflict peace building, in reconciliation processes, in constitution making, in negotiated political settlements, etc., etc. But what young people are demonstrating in practice is the value and importance of sustaining peace necessarily occupying this entire space across the entire peace and conflict spectrum. I think that's organic in the practice of young people's peace building that we are not recognizing and that is a very powerful illustrator. Second area is that young people are also saying working at different levels in society is critical and this is not just about the geography of peace building, it's not just the local as opposed to the global and they're doing both of those things. It's also about working at the institutional level. It's working in intergenerational arenas to cultivate peace. From the most local people-to-people intimate peace-building processes that are individually rooted through to global networks. And I think that's a second area in which integration of approach is very much about the relationship between these different levels and different points of engagement. And the third one that I'd mentioned that I think is so important, and this also relates to the different phases of conflict, is young people recognizing that they're working with different types of violence, from gender-based violence to political conflict, to terrorism, to understanding criminal violence as critical. Uh, Young people in the Latin America and Caribbean consultation were very articulate in saying to us, if you're just talking about violent extremism, we see that as a language which is about a geopolitics that is remote from our concerns around gangs and exclusion of young people from education and economic opportunity and where the patterns of conflict are very different in our arenas from those. And in that understanding of the complex relationship between different types of violence, I think they innovate in powerful ways that peace builders have to learn from. And perhaps most importantly, they recognized that the challenge to the way we think about phases too narrowly, phases of conflict, 
or typologies of conflict. They were saying to us in their own language, in their own voice, patterns of conflict transmute. They are the boundaries between political and criminal violence and our participation in political and criminal groups. This is fungible for young people. And we need to understand that these things transmute and change and that the patterns of conflict change. And that when we think about preventing the recurrence of violence and we think about a prevention agenda, we can't only think about violence or conflict re-emerging along the same lines of social and political fissure as existed before. We need to anticipate the ways in which this change. I think this is all such creative, innovative practice from which the peacebuilding field has so much to learn. And then I would add a couple of things. I think that young people are using different tools. I think that the occupation of of cyberspace, of social media, of different forms of communication, organization, and frankly, direct political participation, where representative politics is feeling like it's leaving them behind or failing them or not accessible to them or not addressing the issues. Young people are gaining access, voice, and roles and participation. They're crafting it themselves in these innovative ways through sports, through culture, through art, and through their occupation of cyberspace. And I think in all of these arenas, we have so much that is enriching in the peacebuilding field to learn from what young people are doing. There's so much that I like about what you're saying. And there's a, a consistent theme for me, which is that there's an integration, an organic integration and in how young people see peacebuilding, uh, which is quite distinct from the policy world, the uh, donor world, the professional world, which is, has segmented it in various ways, thematically, um, to different strands of peace building that you mentioned, but also across time, conflict prevention, atrocity prevention, early response versus conflict management, post-conflict peace building, reconciliation. In reality, I mean, as you well know from your experience and I know from mine, these phases of conflict coexist in any one society. You might have the absence of violence, but a history of violence and the possibility of violence emerging. So these distinctions, they really serve policymakers and people that you know attach a funding architecture to these distinctions rather than they serve the communities on the ground that ultimately should be benefiting from these policies and funding. So one question would be what we would do differently as a global community of peace builders. If we were seeing peace building in a more holistic way, what would that actually look like in terms of tackling integrated challenges rather than just looking as a you know, humanitarian or a conflict prevention activity? Well, I guess the one thing is, you know, what this does is it's, you know, this is not just a tactical exercise or an intellectually or conceptually uh, coherent approach to bottom-up peace building, which is, you know, this is a phrase that's very easy to use and to mystify and, frankly, to romanticize. But there is a powerful demonstration here of the fact that, that we have spent so much time studying conflict and understanding fault lines and fracture uh, that we have really failed to understand what the real sources of innovation, resilience, resourcefulness, uh, creativity, endogenous capacities are in societies and communities to forge and to sustain peaceful relationships and to do this. And what I think we're seeing in the youth arena 
is that there's a powerful incentive to do this. And in the study, it's talking, we sort of talk about how do we get from a demographic dividend of 1.8 billion young people to a peace dividend, which is about recognizing this attribute. It is in the seismic shift from acting remedially and from the outside in to acting preventively and from the investment in endogenous capacities and resilience and resourcefulness of local actors. There's a demonstration effect in this that I think is very powerful. And I think these are the things that we have to do differently. I mean, I do think they're very, they represent very significant challenges. We talk about seismic shifts that this demands from the international community. The ability to shift from remedial approaches to preventive approaches, the ability to shift from investment in risk and remedial measures to prevention-based investment in resilience for peace, the kinds of partnerships that young people forge in this interdisciplinary, integrated way which connects the local to the global, the, the, you know, the partnerships with women's organizations, with human rights organizations, with educational institutions, their ability to work where they can't access central government, which is remote, to work with local mayors, whether it's in in Tripoli in Libya or in Guatemala City in Guatemala. Young people are very creative and innovative in forging those partnerships. This translates in our study into a series of recommendations, but I think these are the seismic challenges for how we need to do things differently that young people are in many respects demonstrating and teaching us in the way in which they're doing this. And I really do want to emphasize, I think just as I, you know, I began this by saying, if we treat young people as a problem, we demonize all young people. I think we have to be equally careful of either romanticizing youth-based peace building or patronizing young people about this. So this is not a romantic vision of these things. It's about a real listening to what young people describe, both in their attributes, in their challenges, in what they're trying to do that I think offers really powerful lessons of where the international community can learn and change. One of the aspects that you've mentioned is the need to support, better support endogenous capacities for peace. Now, this is not a new message. It is arguably a message that's been around since the inception of peace building and it reoccurs in various forms all the time, the local turn, local ownership. What I think a lot of us have seen is that in practice, it's quite hard for international organizations, international society, multilateral institutions, and elites within governments or uh, recipient countries themselves to actually let other people have agency, which is different from local ownership, because if you, and you mentioned this word agency, if you hand over agency, you loosen the reins, then you're loosening control and you're fundamentally shifting power to others that might have different agendas than yours. So I see that as a sometimes almost a rhetorical tool and that various commentators or policymakers are talking about we need to foster endogenous capacities for peace, but in practice, it doesn't happen. And I wonder if you have any insights on how we can bridge that divide and encourage those that do support peace-building processes to give more agency to the people 
from the communities that ultimately need to be empowered to change them, including youth. You know, I think on the youth peace and security agenda, we learned a lot from the women peace and security agenda. And I think we need to take a slightly long-term view of this. I think that with many of the frustrations, you know, and enduring resistance to changed roles of women in society and to a different gender focus in society, I think we have nonetheless seen over a period of time progress. This is not about um, tell no lies, claim no easy victories. This is not about presuming that these battles are won. I think that the concern implicit in your question that this is a, a rhetoric that has been repeated and repeatedly ignored, I think is very true. But I think this is also not about giving agency to young people, giving agency to women. It's about the agency that is claimed by them and that is, is won and fought for in struggle. And one of the deficits in the youth sector, in the youth arena, that you don't have the same, you know, young people, A, outgrow their status as young. So there's a process of graduating out of youthhood and the study identifies the different ways in which this is stymied and frustrated, et cetera, et cetera. But in a sense, the sustaining of a youth movement around these things is not quite the same as um, is the case with gender. And there isn't a global youth movement that matches a woman's movement that is durable and sustained, et cetera, et cetera partly because of this transitionary nature of youthhood itself. So there are different kinds of challenges. But all of this to say that despite that, the agency is something that is claimed by young people. When we talk about the innovative practice of young people, I think this is about a realisation that if the world, if the multilateral system doesn't latch onto this, pretty soon it will be left behind by it. That the forging of alternative process, uh, political practice, political participation, and the innovation of young people in this, it will change the environment in which the politics of the world is happening. And so the multilateral system will have to catch up. So the, the lesson here is to get ahead of the curve on this rather than uh, get left behind. And and I think that this is very powerful. But you, you're right. I mean, the study is very deliberate in saying there's an ease with which this can be tokenistic that this becomes the usual suspects, that we speak to only a select group of youth, but that we need to move beyond just a conversation about young people having a voice to young people having agency, and for that to the issue of young people's leadership. And when we talk about local ownership and agency and leadership, I think we need to stop thinking about local as being about geography, but think about it as constituency. And it's a powerful social demography, a demographic group that is... When we talk about ownership, we need to start talking about how young people own this. Again, I emphasize this is an ongoing process. This is a battle that will continue to be fought over decades and longer, in much the way that a women's movement has had to fight for and claim its space in the peace-building world. I think that young people have to do the same. I think that they are doing it in ways that is forcing the hand of an older generation, but that should not deny the fact that as the population of Africa gets younger, that many, very often, leaders in African and Asian countries came to power on the back of youth movements do not accord to the subsequent youth cohort the same privilege and opportunity. They claim the power and hold on to it. And I think that young people will constantly be wrestling with that. And I think we need to be realistic about it. This is not an agenda that is easily welcomed by elder-driven societies any more than patriarchal societies welcomed 
the power and authority of women in politics. That's a point very well taken. I want to ask you one further question and then we'll look to conclude with some hopeful thoughts for the future and, and final reflections for the peace building community. But my final question is, you raised gender and in the study, you talk about youth peace building work revolving around young women and, the, and leading to the victimization of young women and revolving around sexual and gender minorities and the potential that obscures issues that are related to masculinity, particularly the need to cultivate nonviolent masculinities. And I've seen evidence of that in our work in Myanmar, northern Myanmar, where we would find young men and women having a very different experience of the conflict and the likelihood of young men being recruited to armed forces to be disproportionately affected by problematic drug use and to have different forms of psychosocial trauma were not as readily met or responded to by local or international interventions which were framed around preventing gender-based violence against women or, or women's empowerment. So there was an aspect of the masculine dimension of gender that wasn't addressed. And I wondered if you could unpack any of those findings for us. Sure. I mean, you know, at the heart of this, um, and we speak to this very early on in the study, and so there's a, there's a section in the study which focuses specifically on gender, but very deliberate about saying the gender discourse has to happen throughout the study that we need to demonstrate within the study that it's mainstream, that it's present everywhere. So that's very important. But right at the outset, we talk about the this issue of young people, the threat of youth violence and young people as a problem as being inherently very gendered, that the, the stereotypes are almost inevitably associated with it, you know, of, of youth violence is the stereotype almost inevitably associated with a young, with a young man and a gun. And it's very gendered because it all similarly consigns young women to the status of victimhood. And in both these descriptions, uh, deprive young men and young women of their agency, of their capacity for change, of their roles as leaders in building peace. So the challenge to the stereotypes and the gendered stereotypes of youth and youthhood and what it's represented and its relationship to violence, from the very outset, it's gendered. So on the one hand, the simple solution to this is a recognition that, and this is not new either, that the experiences of young men and young women are distinct and that we need to recognise unique experiences of young women in conflict. Risks of victimisation of young women and the importance of their participation and empowerment, education, etc. all of these, all of the solutions we talk about in the study and the recommendations are gendered in their orientation and character. I don't think the recognition of that necessarily obfuscates a complementary focus, which we are arguing has been missing, on thinking about the particular experiences of construction of masculinity and masculine identity and its relationship to violence and conflict. Both because young men are very important as peace builders and are not all inherently violent and driven into conflict or by conflict. But also because unless we start engaging with these issues of masculinity, we lose an enormous opportunity the formative stages of this identity formation during adolescence, during youthhood of young men, 
where the construction of the and expectations of them uh, in gendered terms is so often associated with power and control over women and an association with violence. And I think our challenge forging alternatives is not an alternative to recognizing the unique experience of young women. It's an additive to it and a critically missing one. So the study is really strong in trying to articulate that and learn from the women's security agenda and lessons as well. And I think uh, supplement that by ensuring that in thinking about gender in relation to conflict building, that we also understand generational differences. So particular experiences of young women, most women in general, and the unique experience of that. This is very important. So I think we're drawing attention to this at every level of the study or trying to. Thank you very much for these very powerful, very insightful comments. What I would ask is if there is any resources in closing that you would like to direct our listeners towards, whether they be related to Interpeace or the Youth Peace and Security Progress Report or anything else that you feel like you would like to draw attention to, as well as any other closing comments you'd, you'd like to make? So, you know, it's really interesting. I mean, I think that our study involved the production of a, a really interesting starting point in establishing a database of, of documents and um, all of the reports that are behind the study are going to be available on the Youth for Peace website, which is, I think, hosted by UNDP. I think the study itself is a starting point, but, and I would emphasize, I think one of the things that the study did was cultivated a coalition of peace-building organizations that were involved in youth-based and youth-led work um, that really are all doing fantastic work from Search for Common Ground, Mercy Corps, Safer World, Accord, Center for the Study of Violence and Reconciliation, Conciliation Resources, my own organization, Interpeace, and many, many more. And these are really invaluable resources organizationally. But I do want to make a very special plug. The United Network of Young Peacebuilders, UNOI, is one organization that was really critical to the work we did. They undertook a survey of youth-led peacebuilding organizations. They're not the only led organization working in this arena. In fact, many don't frame their work or conceive of themselves as peace builders, but are doing really critical work in building and sustaining peace. So I would really emphasize the importance of looking for youth-led organizations and youth leadership in this arena and youth authorship, which is seldom accommodated, cultivated, and facilitated much of the work on this. And, and that's really where I would direct people, partly because it's a question of principle. It's a question of how do we ensure that young people have agency and leadership in this field. And, and that's really where I would go, both for the resources and, frankly, for the inspiration. I think I've said everything I can about what I think is so inspiring about the innovative practice of youth-led peacebuilding. And so it's to that space that I would direct people. And, you know, this includes a recognition that sometimes young people's direct action, protest and dissent, which we so often see as a source of conflict, is actually a critical tool in the way in which young people contribute to driving change and achieving peace. 
Thank you, Graham. Those are powerful words to end the podcast on. I'd really like to thank you for participating. For me, it's it's really inspirational. And I think for our listeners, you bring a lot of experience in your own personal story and the experience of carrying that voice of youth and offering other forums and places where people can access more information if they need it. We will include some website suggestions in the show notes so that people can access those. So once again, thank you very much for your time and contributing. And I look forward to further conversations with you. Thanks. It's been a great pleasure for me. Really great pleasure. All right. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls for listening. That was Graham Simpson from Interpeace. For those of you that are interested, it's a really good time to check out the Youth Peace and Security report that has just been released. And we referred to that. I'm pretty sure if you Google Youth Peace and Security Interpeace, you should be able to find a recent copy of that. There's also plenty of information in our show notes that are on the website at susancoleman.global or you can google the peace building podcast and you can find the episode there with all of the show notes there's plenty of useful information there about graham about interpeace about youth peace and security and of course you should check out all of our other wonderful episodes there's plenty more on the way so we look forward to you guys tuning in and listening more bye for now